taking their seats. We say uh, praise the Lord for uh, young, soft hearts that are learning to worship in the, the reciting and memorizing of Scripture. That's one element of our Sunday night with our kids. And to worship through song as well. And so we say praise the Lord for that uh, this morning. And I'm grateful that they were able to lead us and for all of the volunteers that have worked so hard in that. Well, we're in the third Sunday of Advent. And if you've not been with us up until now, that's okay. I would encourage you to go online on our website and to, to listen to the previous two messages, the first two Sundays of Advent. Um, and this uh, first week that we looked at in Advent, we began in Matthew chapter 1. And we looked at how Matthew lays out for us historically um, this, this notion that Jesus Christ is a king who would ultimately sacrifice or substitute himself in our place. And then week two, we looked at last week, we looked at how Matthew laid out by, by mentioning, by listing just a few key people in the history of Israel, a few key people that Jesus Christ is a king who is coming to judge his people based on their righteous life. And then this week, we're going to attempt to answer this question again. What child is this? One of the things that we've seen, in fact, I, th- I hope the, one of the primary things we've seen in the last two weeks and even this week and moving forward into the fourth week of Advent is that the good news, it's the heart of Christianity is this. It's the good news that the world's creator has fulfilled his once and for all promise to Abraham. And that promise was to rescue this entire universe, his entire creation, the whole world from its brokenness. And Jesus Christ is the climax of this long story, this long road of redemption. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick up this week in verse 18. So let's read this 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, there is definitely more going on in this passage than we can address this morning. um, Than I can even mention. But I want to zoom in on make our focus this morning one critical thing that is in play here. I want to look at verse 22. We'll look at some other verses, but the critical piece I want to 
zoom in on this morning is in verse 22. So look back at verse 22 with me. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here in this passage, he's quoting the Old Testament, but in this New Testament passage, in in Matthew's recording here, we see that the heart of Christianity is Jesus, who is actually God with us. Jesus is something more than a teacher. I, I said this to the students this morning, and I think we've heard this so much. We heard these verses quoted this morning, and we, we read this, and we've heard this so many times for many of us, not all of us in the room, but for many of us in the room, we hear that and it passes in one ear and out the other. We say, yeah, it's God with us. He's Emmanuel. No kidding, right? We hear this every Christmas. But it means this, that at the heart of Christianity, that Jesus is more than a teacher. And there's a fancy word for this. There's a big fancy word I want to teach you this morning. And it's called incarnation. It means that God was incarnated. God was enfleshed. He became flesh. We just sang about that. He took on a body. And if we stay with with Matthew's description here of the incarnation, there's much to be seen and much to be heard about the incarnation. God taking on flesh. For us, for our church, for this morning, I want to draw our attention to two issues that Matthew's highlighting. From his description of the birth of Jesus Christ. And here's the first one. When you look at Jesus, you see God. The incarnation means that when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, you see literally, physically, the living God. Look at verse 20. Notice what the angel tells Joseph about this baby in Mary's womb. Verse, beginning in verse 20. Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I, I, I want to pause there. I think this is a crazy moment for Joseph because this woman that he's betrothed to, to Mary, legally bound to Mary, she's pregnant. He's not known her yet. She's still a virgin, so she's with child. And then an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, do not be afraid. So for a moment, right, He's okay. We see that when God reveals himself to his people in the Bible. He shows up and says, do not be afraid. And so there is this moment. We're going to look at the life of Joseph next week. But he's a just man. And and Joseph, I think for a moment, is okay. Because an angel says, hey, don't fear. Oh, okay. It's going to be okay. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then he's not okay again, right? Hey, don't fear, Joseph. God is in the womb of Mary. I don't think I'm okay in that moment. But look at what Matthew records. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now if we take this these few verses in the context of this long Story, this long redemptive story, right? Beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis, in this long story, right? All of these phrases here, these phrases from the Holy Spirit, He will save His people from their sins. 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Emmanuel, God with us. These phrases, right? Author is only, the author of this book, Matthew, is only wanting us to see one thing. That Jesus is God in the flesh. It adds up. And we started in week one. We said, listen, if you read the, the, from the very beginning of this story in, in the book of Genesis, you can't just start in the middle. If you start in the middle, it feels like there's a, there's a the part of the story you don't know. There's this, you get to the end of the Old Testament and there's this long pregnant pause. And then we get to the book of Matthew. We get to the first book in the New Testament and we, we begin to read about, we read this genealogy as it's if that the, the story is being completed. And we see that here in the genealogy and in these phrases, Matthew is saying to us, Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's a remarkable thing. Don't hear that this year for maybe the 10th time or the 20th time or the 50th time or the 400th time and let it go in one ear and out the other. This is a very remarkable thing. That in the womb of this woman, there is a real woman there. There are women in this room. There are mamas in this room and mamas. There is a mama here who is with child. God himself is in the womb of this woman. This is an incredibly remarkable thing. God himself is taking on flesh. And what he says about you in Psalm 139, that you were knit together in your mother's womb. God is knitting together, if you will, his son Christ in the womb of this woman. It's a tough claim because here's here's the here's the here's what makes this claim tough behind this claim is the idea is that 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 the truth of all other religions or the claims of all other religions are wrong behind the truth of this claim is the claim that that all of the other religions are wrong it's it's an exclusive view, right? Here, when we say, when we hear Matthew, when we read and we hear Matthew recording that God himself is in the womb of a woman, this is a very exclusive claim. The religious founders of all the other major religions in the world say this, I'm a prophet who has come to show you the way to find God. But what do we have here? What do we have in Matthew's account? What do we have in this gospel Account. It's, it's unique in this respect, right? Because here in Christianity, we have a founder who says, I am God and I have come to find you. I'm the way and I've come to find you. We have that with no other religion in the world. This is a very exclusive claim. There's a pastor in New York. Uh, many of you have heard of him. We have had some Bible studies here written by this man. His name is Tim Keller. And a few years back, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal um, quoting this pastor and he is pointing out this very issue. And, and Tim Keller says this, Christianity will never be a good religion among many good religions. One that works for some and doesn't work for others. Because if Christianity is right on this particular issue about Jesus really and truly and actually being God, then Christianity has to be the superior way to find God. Because it is God himself showing us the way to himself. But on the other hand, if Christianity is wrong on this issue, then at, this, at its core, it is deeply corrupted, even blasphemous. It's, a, it's then a far, far inferior religion. Now listen, I, I, 
I don't know that it's this way for all of us in the room. But I do believe that for some in this room, maybe just one, but for many in our culture, that this is very difficult because conventional wisdom says in our culture, in our society, that that this is claiming a superior position, right? And if you claim a superior position on issues of religion, really on religious truth, then it's arrogant and even closed-minded, right? Like that you know the only way. That Jesus Christ is the only way. And and the reality is, many do not believe that. Many would say that there are many ways, but there is one God. We had some students that did a research project on all the major religions of the world. And they said the common thing in all of them was that they all believed that there was a good place and a bad place. And that they were all headed to a good place. But the exclusive claim in all of them was that Jesus Christ is God and he is the only way. It sounds in our culture, in our, maybe even to you this morning, very arrogant and even closed-minded. And when you talk with one that would, ones that would believe you, you say, well, why, why is it arrogant, right? Because in many's mind, um, it's an elevation of your own, what they would say, an unverifiable opinion. How do you substantiate your claim? It's unverifiable. And it's not only arrogant, but it's dangerous because this kind of thinking results in violence. But listen, I I need you to hear me this morning in this. The radical and exclusive belief that Christianity reveals to us the true God in Jesus Christ, this is the most inclusive life possible. It's the most inclusive life possible. We looked at that last week. Christianity says this. Care for the poor. Love the weak. Empower women. Bring races, right? People of of different classes together. Endanger your own life to heal the sick. Do the hard and dangerous work of pursuing peace. Listen, the church throughout history has many warts. Some of you in this room have been wounded by the church. And in your mind, you're just waiting for the next ball to drop. Throughout the history, the church has had many warts. But also, it has enormous virtue. You need to know that this morning. Listen, I only know of of one place in all of history where there was a a non-violent end to slavery. And that was in England. And it was on the backs of of Herculean efforts by Christian men and women. Herculean efforts by men and women. Hospitals around the world. The church, right? In the the needs of the places they... Hospitals are birthed and sprung up. Why? To care for the sick, the endangered, the poor. Relief work globally. Just in this room, many of us have been loved in incredible ways by the church. So with its warts, you you need to know this morning that the church has enormous virtue. And when you keep reading this story, we started with the genealogy, the genesis of the birth of Christ. And if you keep reading the story, you find that at the center of this audacious claim that Jesus is God, 
you find God dying on the cross out of love for his enemies. So at the heart of our self-image as Christians is God sacrificing himself for his enemies. Listen, this is a claim to deep humility. So the person that says that exclusive claims are arrogant, right? And they lead to violence. I disagree because the exclusive claim of Christianity is that when we see Jesus Christ, we see the living God and this claim leads to humility because we see God dying for them, loving them. And when you let that sink in to the heart of who you are, it will lead to the most inclusive life possible. Life out of the most exclusive claim possible. The truth is that God became very weak. He loved and died for the people who would oppose him. He forgave them. And listen, when that we, we can't just hear that this is God in the flesh and ignore it. No, when this sinks into the center of who you are, you then will be at the center of the solution for the world. Think about that. If he is our model, if, if God in the flesh in Jesus Christ is our model, and that sinks into us what he accomplishes on the cross, how he opposes his enemies, how he goes after the poor, after the oppressed, after the disadvantaged, after the weak, after races and color, all of this in that exclusive claim, when we see him and we see that as our model, we see the solution that we need in the world. Period. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at the living God. And that's the first thing that we need to hear this morning from Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Well, let's look at the second thing. The incarnation means this. Unless God intervenes, you and I are doomed. Look with me at verse 18. In verse 18, he says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Skip down to 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Skip down to verse 25. And he called his name Jesus. This name Jesus, it's the Greek version of a Hebrew name. Do you know what it is? It's Joshua. You know what Joshua means? It means God who saves. Look at verse 21 again. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now this is hard. Right? If you have ever had children in your presence for very long at all. We, we know that we push against this. This is hard to come to grips the fact, with the fact that we need to be saved, rescued from our sin. But at the heart of Christmas is this claim. Sometimes we think about wrongs uh, done and forgiveness. We, we put the emphasis on this one area. We put it on forgetting. Right? You've wronged me, and so we should forget about it and move on. And that's part of it at times, right? First Peter chapter 4. Verse 8, we walked through the book of 1 Peter. When I first came back on board with Edward was preaching through 1 Peter, I would encourage you to go back to those sermons. 1 Peter chapter 4, he, he says that love covers a multitude of sins. And let me tell you, learning this goes a long way to bringing peace and joy and kindness. I had this conversation in my home this week with my children. Sometimes, sometimes we need to suck it up and get over the offense. Right? 
your sister, your brother, your sibling, your spouse, your whoever, didn't really mean to offend you in that way. And we need to suck it up and get over it because loving them and moving on covers a multitude of sins. But that's not all there is to the story of righting wrong, good and bad. And if you go too far down the road of forgiveness and unforgiveness and offense, you learn very quickly that that is not all there is to that story. You see, many of us agree and many of us know deep within who we are that sin doesn't just go away. Sin doesn't just go away. It sticks to you. Your own dark thoughts and desires, your actions, your behavior doesn't go away when you forget about it, right? You see, if I have some debt that I'm paying on and, and by some psychological chance, if you can have that, I forget about it and stop paying on it. Well, the debt doesn't go away. It's still there. And sin doesn't just go away. It sticks to you. Even if you forget about it, your selfishness, your anger, your greed, sin is a reality. And a very real part of that reality is that you and I are stained by sin. It's, it's undeniable and you can't escape it. It's, un, it's inescapable that you and I are stained by sin. And this stain plays itself out in a couple of ways. Two ways that I'm going to address this morning. The first is this. We are stained in the sense that we bear the guilt of our sin. See, our status before God and others and the world is that of guilty. That's, we like to pass the blame, right? Who, who did it? I didn't do it. She did it. I didn't do it. He did it. Whose fault is it in the divorce? Well, it's no fault. It's no one's fault, right? Did you do this or did your sister do this? She did it. He did it. We are all about passing the blame. And as we get older, we just get more mature in the ways that we pass the blame. But our status, I said this, and let me repeat this. Our status before God and others and the world is that of guilty. And guilt is the real status that we carry, whether or not you feel guilty, right? You can feel guilty, and that's called shame. But we don't always feel that, right? We don't always feel shame. We have these, uh, there are people, there have been people, And there's all kinds of crimes that you can commit. But there are people that commit heinous crimes and feel no remorse. No shame. But at the core, at the foundation, they're still guilty. Whether or not they feel shame or not. And sin is this way. Shame is not the fundamental problem. The guilt behind the shame is our fundamental problem. Now here's the deal. The big The big and most primary, the most terrible result of this is that we are exiled from our creator and we are in absolute need of his rescue, his saving, his cleansing. We bear the guilt of sin. It's undeniable. And this is at the heart of Christmas. You and I are guilty and we could spend the rest of the sermon with scriptures. And I would love to talk with you. If you want to push back in those areas, we can open the Bible together. But we're going to move on. The second way that sin stains us, in addition to our guilt, is that we are corrupted. 
We've been corrupted and broken, and this spreads. We spread corruption like cancer. You know this. When you, when you entertain a sin for very long, you know that it doesn't stop. It snowballs. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're more deeply corrupted. The reality of our stain is there, but we are increasingly corrupted. It spreads. We spread that corruption. And then no longer are we infected by it, but we've spread it to others. And our sin is infecting other people. We draw other people into this. And sin has turned our power for good into a corrupting influence. And listen, not only is sin present in the chambers of my heart, it is present in the structures of our world. It is not only present in the chambers of your heart and my heart. It is present in the way our world is structured. It is. It's corrupt. Right? Cities are broken. Art is broken. Business is broken. Government is broken. Nature is broken. And the scriptures say that the entire world groans under this. All of creation. Listen, it wasn't just you that was broken in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve, they no longer knew themselves. They no longer knew who they truly were. And that's why some of you have identity crisis. Because you don't know who you are in Christ. And you don't know whose you are. Adam and Eve, it started in the garden. Creation was broken. Right? Now they, the ground produced thorns and thistles. There was relational brokenness. And now there's strife. All of the cosmos, all of creation was broken. The structures of our world are broken. The entire created order stands in need of God's healing power of his resurrection. Everything that you know has been affected, has been corrupted by sin. And it stands in need of God's redeeming reconciling, healing power that happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's at the heart of Christmas. It's at the heart of who we should be, right? When we see Jesus Christ, and listen, for, this is a side note, but Christ is not his last name. That's an accident of history. That is not his last name. It should read Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. The God that spoke when there was nothing is fully man and fully God in the manger. So when you see Jesus, do not sentimentalize the manger scene. You most likely have one in your home. There's one, there are ones in the city. There's ones in people's yards. We have them all over the place. And when you see this, do not sentimentalize a manger scene. It is God, the long-awaited Messiah. All of, all of the recorded history in the Old Testament, this waiting for, this longing, this promised Savior. God made all of these prom- the promised one, the hope of Israel, who would... Rescue his people. It is God that you see in the manger. Fully God and fully man. And when you see him, you need to be reminded that unless he intervenes, we're doomed. 
Because he came, Matthew records here, in his gospel account, in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, he records that you and I needed Jesus Christ, needed God to become flesh so that we could be rescued from our sin. And we live in a culture that will pass off guilt. It is not my fault. It's always someone else's problem. But at the heart of you and I, we are stained and corrupted by sin and in desperate need of this baby that was born. God. In the form of Jesus Christ, because we've been because we're guilty, we've been corrupted, we are broken. And he, it says in verse 21, this son that this Mary was going to give birth to, he alone will save his people from his, from their sins. So, so why do we do this, right? Why do we gather on Sunday nights and we have kids choir that are memorizing scripture and singing songs that are not just cute and neat, but really are making known the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we do those things? Why do we why do we lean heavy and believe heavily in the faithful, expository, line by line preaching of God's word and not in you needing me or you needing Edward to entertain you in these few moments that we're here? Why do we believe in the faithful teaching of Sunday school teachers? Why do we believe in faithful biblical counseling? When you come to us, we don't farm it out. When you come, we say, well, our greatest problem is sin and our greatest need is Jesus Christ. So let's open the Bible and see what he has to say about your greatest need. Why do we do that? Why do we gather here on Sunday morning? Why do we collectively put all of our energies and all of the dollars together to turn the lights on, to turn the heater air on, to put pretty flowers out here and make it a little more comfortable in the seats and then prepare, pray, do all. Why do we do this? Well, we do this so that you can more effectively, I believe, be a community of Christians who are proclaiming with their lives and their words, and their deeds, the forgiveness and reconciliation with God that is available through Jesus Christ. The message of the church is forgiveness of sins, period. The message of the church is forgiveness of sins. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, it's this glorious, impossible thing that you and I are about to celebrate, really. I know that scares some of you because Christmas is only in a few days, and we're getting ready to, to celebrate that. It's this glorious impossible. I mean, think about that. Yahweh, God, knit together in the womb of a woman who is a virgin. King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world, without sin. Embedded in God taking on flesh and becoming one of us. Embedded in this is this particular analysis, if you will, of what's really wrong with the world. Listen, it's not, it's not a politician. It's not a particular form of government. It's not whether you are in a, live in a red state or a blue state or whether you don't have a color at all. It's not. Now, those things are broken, just like you and I are broken. But embedded in this glorious impossible, God taking on flesh, 
is an analysis of what's wrong with this world. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the baby in the manger, this is a profound statement that the primary human problem is sin and the solution is God's radical action to affect forgiveness. Do you believe that? Really, don't just hear me because if you say, yeah, I've heard that and I've been a Christian a long time and I believe that. No, do you really believe that? Because if you do believe that, it will change the way you live your life. You can't just believe it and it not change you. When we believe and we rest and we trust in this, it changes who you are. We are guilty people. We're guilty of sin. Some of us know that really well. Because you've been sinned against or because at your core, you are a rascal. But in Christ, we are offered salvation from that guilt. You need to hear that this morning. In Christ, we are offered salvation from that guilt. Not only or simply the shame, but from the guilt. Forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, we have the opportunity to be restored to the way God intends for us to be. We spent a Sunday night not long ago talking about this. I know, I know that I I need to be careful how I say this, but I'm not just an old sinner saved by grace. I'm not. I have been blood-bought. I have been born again. I have been set free. I am no longer guilty. I have been pardoned. I was exiled, and I am no longer exiled from my Creator. He has put me in His presence. I am free of the guilt of shame and sin and all of those other things. I have been set free. I don't have to live according to that anymore. I can live according to the Spirit. I am a saint. I am holy and blameless. I am a child of God. Yes, I sin and I am in desperate need on a regular basis of Christ's forgiving work. But at my core, I have been bought and redeemed. I have been righted. I've been put to rights. What was how I was exiled from my creator is no more. In a physical sense, yes. But in a spiritual sense, no. I am, I am right. He's put me to rights by my trust in Jesus Christ. Not a mental thing that I did some, you know, almost 20 years ago. No. Not some box you checked at RA camp. Or GA camp. Or an aisle you walked. No, not some mental thing. But with your life, we said this in week one, are you leaning on trusting in what Christ is and what he has done in the exclusive claims of Christianity? I am banking my entire life on that. All of my chips are in. Everything is riding on that. I believe that to be true. And and in Christ, I am now right with God through Jesus Christ and the spirit of God lives in me. So the incarnation is God's initiative 
You need to know that word. It is God's initiative. He moved first on display. God's radical commitment to us to save us and to be with us. God's initiative on display in Christ, in the manger, God himself. So what child is this? Well, he is a child who rescues. All of us are in need of rescue. And God in the flesh, this child, is a king who rescues. And you need to know that this morning. In just a few moments, after I pray and close, we're gonna, you're going to be invited. There's no particular order. Some men are going to be at the tables. And when you are ready, I want to invite you to come to the table. And, and we're taking communion not because of some systematic order that has to be met. We're taking communion today because this is a perfect way, a perfect message. When we say, what, what child is this? Well, this child is a king who rescues. So the manger scene is not some neat little baby. It's God in the flesh who came to rescue from the guilt of sin. And when we come to this table and we experience the body broken and the blood shed, it is a reminder, it is a reminder all the way back to the nativity. Yes, the cross, that's where the body was broken and that's where the blood was shed. But it is a reminder that the baby in the scene was God's rescue plan. Right? He was headed to Calvary. So when you come to the table this morning, you celebrate and you remember and you reflect on that there was a real body that was really born. Really born. Fully human, took on flesh, experienced pain. I said this this morning, the straw in the manger was probably uncomfortable and the baby probably cried. He grew up, lived a perfect sinless life. And stood in your place on the cross at Calvary. Substituted himself for you. Because you are guilty. In need of rescue. Of redemption. Of being bought. Purchased. Born again. And so we're going to come to the table remembering that. And remembering as Paul says. We're going to proclaim this until he comes again. And so you remember this morning. That he is coming again. Some glorious day as we sang about earlier. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this morning and for your word. Father, I thank you that you inspired by your Holy Spirit, Matthew, to pen his gospel account. And there is some, are some very simple words there. But I do believe with all that I am that this author and that you, the divine author, wanted us to see a profound truth. That we have a king who would sacrifice himself, substitute himself. We have a king who would, who would call us into account for someday because he modeled perfectly a righteous life and calls us to it. And we have a king. We have the recordings of this king who would save his people from his sin. It, it, it insinuates that there's a need. We are a needy people. We're guilty. We are stained and corrupted. 
And there are those in this room who are in desperate need because they've never experienced the freedom in Jesus Christ that can be known. So I thank you this morning. When we talk about this child in a manger, oh, we're talking about God himself who came to rescue his people from their sin, to wash their sin, their stained person as white as snow. Father, I pray over the next few moments that we would, yes, reflect on that, but also as we begin and prepare to approach the table that we would know that this baby that was born in a manger is the same God in the form of Jesus Christ that went to the cross. You cannot separate them. And so we experience the broken body and the blood that was shed. And that began long before the manger, but, but in light of Advent and in light of this text, we see it happening before our eyes in the manger, a real body growing and blood pulsing in the life of Christ in the womb. May we know that this morning. May we know that this morning. And where in this room we are exiled from God our Creator, may we repent and get right. And no longer allow our identity to be a sinner in need of rescue. But that we would be restored and right with our Creator through the person of Jesus Christ. Someone that's born again, child of God. And where in this room we are exiled because of on for sin in our life, may we repent of that as we said last week because the spirit of god is in us we need not be afraid to repent and be right because of the grace that was offered in jesus christ father we pray all these things in the name of your son jesus who is who was and will always be the christ